Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg and this is Between the Lines, a podcast telling the stories behind great sports writing. It then chimed perfectly, the book chimed perfectly with what the Dutch did in, in Euro 2000. They played the book almost. Exactly as I described, they played, and then they tragically, ridiculously, disastrously, unbearably lost in the, in the semi-final, this crazy game. One of the big newspapers in Holland, the NRC Handelsblatt, had a big page, like a whole front page of their review section the day after the, the Italy game. And it was all, you know, David Winner predicted this. And then years later, I discovered that they had two versions. <laughs> the other one, if, if Holland had won that game, they said, David Winner's got it completely wrong. He doesn't understand anything. <laughs> In the late 90s, David Winner wrote a book about Dutch football called Brilliant Orange. It was a very different kind of football book. The first line states, If this is a book about Dutch football, at some stage you'll wonder why it contains pages and pages about art and architects, cows and canals, anarchists, church painters, rabbis and airports. Winner saw Holland's football as a mirror and expression of its culture, and his idiosyncratic explorations lead him into weird and wonderful places. It shouldn't work, but it does. It works because Winner is simply a great writer, and his arguments are captivating. It also works because, at its core, it is a rollicking good football book. All the names from the glorious era of Dutch football are here. Niskins, Johnny Rep, and the overarching presence of the legendary Johan Cruyff. This is my conversation with David in London, over a decade and a half after this classic was first published. I remember, well, I did, like everybody, you saw the, the Dutch play, you saw Ajax first and then the Dutch national team, and you were swept away. They're loved, that team is loved all around the world, and Cruyff is loved, and the great outpouring of love and, and grief when he died, that, that was unusual for a footballer or any cultural figure. But it bore out the feeling that, that I've had for many years that he's you know, a major cultural figure, let alone, you know, not just a sporting one, he's a major cultural figure. I, had, I don't exactly know why I had a kind of affinity with Holland, and I spent some time there um, as a teenager, uh, as a student, and then again in the 80s. My idea of the football was always tied up with the idea of the place and the idea of Dutchness, which was always, for me, just out of reach, because I'm English and I don't speak Dutch. And so it was, yeah, they, they, they just flowed together very naturally. Never occurred to me to separate them, indeed. I think you say in the introduction that you actually moved to Amsterdam to write the book. Yeah, I'd been very ill in the early 90s. I had ME, chronic fatigue, which came out of you know, a period in the late 80s where I was working sort of too much and doing some very heavy subjects. So I, was, I was writing a lot about the Holocaust, human rights stuff. I did a book about the Green Movement. Somehow I got burned out by these things and I uh, ended up getting very ill. And as I was, and, you know, for about 18 months, I could barely walk across a room. It was, it was bad. And as I was coming out of this, I kind of went back to this earlier love of the Dutch because it just happened to coincide with the emergence of, in fact, the third generation 
of great Dutch footballers. So it was the Bergkamp generation just coming. And I had cable, it was one of the first cable tellies, telly service. And they had a pa- one of the Arabic channels. If you subscribe to the Arabic channels, you could see Dutch games from a month before, but like whole games. And this was fantastic. So I was kind of before that everybody was watching foreign football, I had this kind of weird little little way of, of getting a glimpse of what was going on in Holland, even though I couldn't travel at the time. But I always saw it as a kind of repeat, as I'd seen 88 as well, as a kind of re- rebirth, a recoming of the, a coming again of the, the Cruyff idea. And then so I started writing just odd newspaper articles. Uh, and then I, after like two or three years of this, I did a piece for a Dutch magazine called Hardgrass about, um, about the 96-4-1 England beating Holland game. And that was my introduction to this, to this magazine, wonderful magazine. And they had, there was a fantastic magazine, it still is a fantastic magazine, but they had this tradition, which they've stopped now, of every, t- every it would come out every quarter, and everybody who'd written for the magazine would be invited out, flown out to Amsterdam, they would have a dinner for all the people who'd written for them that quarter. And I was completely thrilled to, to, to be among all these Dutch journalists who knew the players that I'd worshipped. One occasion, and I wrote several times for them, one occasion Johnny Rep came. And I was having dinner with, you know, with Johnny Rep. Fantastic. Anyway, so I, 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 I was immersing myself to a degree in this world. And through various people I knew, I ended up doing a tra- the translation of um, Book of Interviews with Cruyff, which is uh, ABC, Ajax Barcelona Cruyff, um, which is a collection of interviews done by Fritz Barrand and Henk van Dorp through, through the 90s, more or less. There was very little about the 70s in it. And I didn't speak a word of Dutch, so I did it with my Dutch uh, cousin-in-law. And I did that, and that was all for Bloomsbury. And I became friends with the editor on that on that book it was a guy called Mike Jones and in the the, the approach to um, Euro 2000 I, I said to him I've had this idea which I'd had for years of doing a book about why the Dutch play differently well what is it that's making them special and it was always going to be about about the, the wider culture in the football and the, the details of it, I'd, I'd originally conceived of it as, you know, architecture would be a separate chapter. Politics, I didn't know as much as I came to know. And just a relatively few months, I think it was May 99, I pitched, I pitched this to him. And I was already working on something else for him, a completely different subject. And he said, no, no, this is better. Do it. And I did it between, well, I went out in August of 99 supposed to deliver by December, four months later. Uh, but in fact, it was, it was more like March. And I was sending chapters as they were coming, you know, as, I, as they came out of my printer, I'd, you know, I'd send them off. I felt in some ways that I'd failed because I hadn't got an interview with Cruyff, despite many attempts and the fact that I'd done the book. Uh, and then, you know, I was hoping that Fritz Barrand would introduce me, but he didn't. Um, and I'd sent Cruyff... The space chapter, which turned out to be the most important one, I think. That was most of the work. Um, in Dutch, you know, translated. And he still didn't respond. 
And I, when, I, when I'd finished it, there was this sense of regret that, you know, I didn't actually get to speak to the main man. Mm-hmm. Though I'd spoken to pretty much everybody else. Michels, uh, Bobby Harms, Vazovic, these guys who are all dead now. Um, and I think, in retrospect, it turned out to be an advantage. Because if it had all been through Cruyff's eyes... I was, I was going to say that. I think yeah. he, he's an overarching presence. In the yeah, he's, he's kind of there in every page, even when he's not there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the most powerful sections of the book for me is actually at the start, where you, where you state your case very clearly. You frame the book from the first sentence. And even the first paragraph, you have this, this line, if this is a book about Dutch football, at some stage you'll wonder why it contains pages and pages about art and architects, cows and canals, anarchists, church painters, rabbis and airports. So straight away you're, you're addressing that, that this is going to be a different type of book. So that was written at the very end. Was it? Yeah. Right. In fact, I had a, a team, cal- an Ajax calendar, poster size, next to my desk in Amsterdam, which I'd sort of stick post-it notes on. Uh, architecture, art, uh, canals, hippies, whatever it was. I knew these, these were some of the elements. I, I saw the, the, the space chapter I did is, is absolutely the most important one because I'd, I'd had, for example, the idea of watching the Van Gaal Ajax in the mid-90s. Now everybody plays a bit this way. But at the time, it was extraordinary. It was like a souped-up version of what they'd been doing in the 70s. And it, the image that always it was in my mind was of either a kind of card player kind of shuffling cards around or tectonic plates being moved around in the same manner. But it was movement and space. And I didn't exactly know how or why it was like that. But that was my sense. And when I was spending time in Amsterdam in the late 90s on, you know, flying visits, I was fascinated one train journey, which I did from Brussels to Amsterdam, to seeing how they dealt with graffiti by, cover- by putting plants over it. And I, think in it I, I thought, well, we don't do that. South Amsterdam, where I ended up living, near the Vondel Park, where I'd slept as a teenager, so I kind of felt a connection with that area. So in the architecture around there, it's all Amsterdam School, which I talk about a bit in the book. And I thought, well, why are they, you know, it's, it's very disciplined, and they've got these little spaces where it's obligatory to be creative and weird and funky. So, you'd, you know, these very, very, very different from the kind of housing estates public housing that I knew from Britain. So the, what's going on in, in the Dutch culture that makes this stuff possible? And I just, it was intuitive. I just sensed that this culture and the football culture were from the same place at the same kind of time. There had to be a connection. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I, that's one of the things that really appealed to me, that you build these, you call them uh, obsessional investigations, but you build them in very solid concepts, and the yes. idea of, of space is very powerful. I mean, it's the yeah. cornerstone of the book, and yeah. I, I love the idea of the, you have a small country that's reclaiming land from the yeah. sea. They're thinking about space constantly. You're describing the spatial neurotics, mm. which I thought was a, a great um, phrase. And, and I think once you get that concept of, of this is how this nation was built, yep. then the extension to the football culture is not a great leap at all. No. In fact, it's a natural extension. Yes. My method was I have these sort of hunches and instincts and questions, and I would then go to people who knew. It's not enough to just have the idea. I feel I have to nail it down. And there, were, there, were, there are other bits that didn't work mm-hmm. and got junked. One was fire nord, actually, because it just didn't wasn't what I was talking about. I thought I'd have to get, you know, I'd have to spend some time in Rotterdam, you know, the two great pillars 
there's very at that time in the late 90s there's very little recording of you know entire games you'd get a little bit I, there was one tape I got of um, Feyenoord beating Celtic in the 1970 European Cup final which Feyenoord supporting friends thought was extraordinary they'd never seen it since you know but watching that game and then talking to Feyenoord people it was clear that they, whatever they were doing and it was admirable in lots of ways it was completely different mm-hmm. wasn't the thing I was interested in so it ends up there's almost no Feyenoord in the book at all yeah that's interesting one of the things that, that frustrates me about this country is that we have this tendency to compartmentalise different parts of our culture so sport is over there yes, yes, music, yes. music's over there architecture's up here well they, they do that in Holland as well do they? so I mean there was not hostility the people were kind of amused I remember having a one of the nicest interviews with uh, a guy who's also not alive anymore, Rudy van Danzig, the, the dancer, great choreographer, and he'd worked with Kreif and van Basten. They, they'd worked together, I forget what it was, a documentary or something, comparing, because that's an image that comes up often when the Dutch talk about their own football, you know, their dancers. They talk about them, and Kreif was the greatest of the dancers. So, and he lived just around the corner from me, in fact, but he, and he's rather reluctantly agreed to be interviewed. He was, you know, I could sort of see him getting more and more into it because I wasn't asking football questions at all. And he, uh, he said at the end, well, that was, that was, I thought it was going to be very boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it wasn't. These, are, these reflect my interests, I suppose, that, you know, it's, I'm not coming at it from a conventional, traditional sports reporter yeah. background because I, I wasn't. I mean, I can do it a bit and I have done a bit of that, but that's not really what I, what I do. I mean, one of the things that amazed me was that the, the interviews that you do with academics, artists, architects, they display a willingness to explore how their form of expression relates to football. Did you have to lead them down that path? Have they formulated these ideas themselves? No, no, they hadn't formulated the ideas. It was in conversation, In conversation, right, okay. But you, you discover a lot of common ground. Come back to this idea of building, building around solid concepts. Like I love the part about the the sixties and this kind of um, cultural and social revolution, which was happening at the same time yep. as the flourishing of total football, yep, yep, yep. and and that idea worked for me very powerfully because of the key point that you arrive at. There's a great quote, and I've got it down here. It says, "Croif gets into all sorts of conflicts because he started asking the question that the whole generation was also asking." Why are things organised like this? Yes. I thought that was really powerful. And to me, that was you'd made the argument in that one sentence because I thought, right, you're not trying to say that these footballs over here were, you know, political uh, dissidents in the side or, yeah, or, yeah, they, yeah. You know, or they were part of a counterculture or hippie movement. They well, weren't either of those but things. Exactly. It's, but they but were connected to them somehow. They were connected to them somehow. Yeah. The point that Cruyff embodies this liberal attitude towards authority seemed to me to be the key to the whole thing. But he's also, you know, he's, a, he's he was not an educated guy, but he was, a, you know, profoundly intellectual in his in his way of seeing, which is just very fresh. But it was also given space. So as much as he was in conflict at times, I mean, he liked conflict as well. But I, I've often wondered how Cruyff would have turned out if he'd been, you know, born in the north of England mm. yeah. or in Brazil mm-hmm. or in Germany or in Italy or something, where, where, the, where the culture was very different. And I did, when when he died, I was doing a Radio Five thing with uh, and Chris Waddle. It was like a phone in mm-hmm. on Radio Five, and somebody asked this question in a, in a slightly different form. You know, what would he have been like if he'd been born in born in Britain? And Chris Waddle said he'd never have got a game. 
you know, if he'd, if he'd been born in, you know, Newcastle or Doncaster or somewhere, you know, the, the prevailing culture in, in, in British football at that time was, you know, you do as you're told, essentially. You run around a lot. And anybody who, who tries to puff about, that's a later expression, but, you know, it was uh, sexually suspect. And, and in a later book, a book about the English game, Those Feet, I talk about you know where that idea comes from, that repression and that sort of um, contempt and fear, distrust of creative types, original types. They're always seen as trouble in the English game until really quite recently. And Chris Waddle, who, who was rather... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. That way himself, you know, he was a great and creative and original not at Christ's level, but, you know, a wonderful player. He'd, he'd gone through this. He spoke from experience. I mean, being comfortable with conflict is, is something in itself, and, and maybe that is peculiar to, to Holland, but that, that comes across very powerfully uh, in Dutch football, maybe in Dutch culture, in the way that it doesn't in British culture. Would I, th- you, I you? think that's a, very much to do with him. It's just his personality. Mm-hmm. and losing his father very young. I don't know enough about his psychology to know why he relished that so much. He was a street kid to, to a large degree. You know, it's a tough environment. It, it's often said in Holland when they look back at the 70s guys and then compare them with the psychologically much more frail generations that came after. So, you know, we lost something. The, the potato generatie, the, the, the potato generation was a thing in the 80s and early 90s. Say. You know, these kids who just have it, have it so easy. So he was, he was from this earlier rather hard, hard life, you know, hard life experiences. Van Hanachem, who, who was the other great, he was the final player, and they were, you know, quite close friends. You know, he'd lost his whole family in the war. It was a different Holland then. And... It's, it's kind of an accident of history and timing. You know, if, he'd, if Cruyff had been burned, uh, born in the, in the 30s, say, or in a different place, how, I wonder how many of the elements that, that were present would have been present. I guess when you immediately think about the book, you think about the, the hinterland that you explore beyond football. But actually, when I reread it like last week, one of the things that stuck out very clearly was, at its core, it's a cracking football book. I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, interviews with footballers. There's a lot of games, tournaments, uh, tactics, and, and I really loved that. You know, the fact that you revisited these personalities, got their first-hand accounts, and they come across as real personalities, which yeah. comes back to your uh, your point there about, about Cruyff. This was obviously a moment in history where um, these characters were forged in different times, yeah. and that yeah. must have been very enriching to go back to them and to hear these accounts. The feeling you got from talking to them, meeting them, was exactly the same feeling you got from watching them on TV as playing football you know, many years earlier. For example, the, my friend Ingrid, uh, uh, you know, she, she happened to be staying with me and she came along to the interview with Johnny Rep. And she was, she was very intrigued by 
how boyish we were together, which was kind of flattering for me because I, you know, he was one of my heroes. And the idea that she was seeing us as, you know, connecting. But we, we sort of did connect. But I was very much in awe and still um, in awe of him as this guy who'd done these wonderful things in football. And the way he played and the way he is, the way he was, the way, the, the way his conversation developed, you know, it was, a, it was a lovely mixture of toughness and vulnerability and generosity, great warmth. That was the other thing that really struck me about all of these guys. Enormously warm, enormously open, uh, generous, willing to engage, to be playful, yeah. but also to defend you know, their turf if necessary. So I, th- I can't remember, Rude Kroll was a very interesting mixture of toughness and impregnability and surpri- well, surprisingly gentle and free-flowing philosophical observations. Yeah. I mean, and, which is exactly what charmed me about that team in the first place. Uh, Barry Hulsoff, who didn't play in the 74 World Cup, was perhaps the most eloquent and the most who entered the one who entered most into this, and he was just extraordinary. And I didn't really know very much about him until I met him. And it was a, a very—he's a big voice in the book. He is. He—he's he, one of the one of my favourites in the book. Yeah, the real people. That I mean, that—that's the, the wonderful thing about that generation. That I think is it. Uh, Jan Mulder uh, runs a cigar shop. Uh, no, Benny Benny Muller. Benny Muller. Sorry, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, Jan Mulder is the sort of um, Byron esque. He, he was. He yes, was a, that's right. How, how does he? Because it turns out I heard, I heard later that he said, "You know, how does he dare describe me as like a Dracula figure?" Because <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, he obviously is and was wonderful. But, but, but the, the point I'm making is the the real people in the sense that when they finish their careers, they're probably not. Millionaires are definitely no, definitely not. So they have to plug back into general society. So, so you get more of a, a, yes. a human connection with them. Yes, maybe. Yeah, it's a very. I mean, there's no, there was no problem about access. Yeah, except with Karev and with, and with Naiskins and these, and Vim Subia, who was who was the the right back in the in the Ajax and, and Dutch teams uh, that time. I ran into later. He was in America, and this was one of the highlights of my life, actually. This is 2005 or so. The, the book was, had been out quite a while by then. I was in a part of Amsterdam, I'd, and I wasn't living there at the time. I'd gone back and was visiting. Was happened to be in a part of the city that I didn't know very well. And I needed a pee. And I just I thought, oh, I'll go in that bar over there. And I looked, sort of hovering on the door. I was just kind of looking in to make sure they had a loo. And this guy at the at the Bar, hey, come in! Don't be, don't be frightened. Come in, yeah, join us. And he had these two, two women with him, and he was sort of life and soul of the party. But it was like two thirty in the afternoon, and um, as I got close to him, I realised who it was. I said, "You're Vim Subia, aren't you?" And I, and I, I said, "I remember you did this thing in the '74 World Cup." He's the one that started all the trouble in the game against. Brazil, mm. you know, he starts the violence. The Brazilians are always blamed for it, but actually it was him. And he's looking at me, he's looking at me. And he said, are you David Winner? At which point I died and That's... went to heaven. And I'm a disembodied spirit now talking. But yeah, <laughs> so, so you'd obviously you tried so, to get so, him. So I tried to get him and I couldn't get him at the time. But it, I, from that I understood that the guys had read it, you know, and they knew it. And they, 
I knew Johnny Rep had because he came and helped publicise the book when it came out in paperback. Oh, right. A year, so 2001 or something. That was that was very lovely of him. Um, but anyway, but the, yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, the, the, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Johnny Rep. I, I love that chapter. You do it in a Q and A style, which I think is very fitting for the type of interview it is. But it's also it contains my favourite quote in the book, where where you say to him. The book isn't really a history of all of Dutch football, just the highlights. And for me, you are in most of them. And he replies and says, that's true. You can't say it isn't true. (laughs) (laughs) I remember him saying it. (laughs) Which is just absolutely genius. But it was a very ping-pong style of conversation. You know, he's coming out with one-liners, you're coming back at him. It's very playful. Yeah. So, but he's also a bit defensive. Yeah, he, he is. He is. He's, you know, he's defending his turf. He's, de- he's defending. You're giving him a compliment, and he's defending. Like, yeah, he's yeah. trying to be defensive in, in response. To, you can't say it isn't true, and you're like, oh, no, I'm saying it's true. <laughs> what did he say? It was. <laughs> but it's you know, the, there's the famous moment in '74 because mm-hmm. they weren't just sort of softies and you know footballing intellectuals who, who'd rather be you know pipe smoking and reading. Nietzsche or something in a library. No, they were tough, hard yeah. guys as well. And there's, um, we talk about it in the interview, asking about it. The, 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 there was a, in this very violent game, the, the, the semi final game effectively against Brazil in 74, where they're all, they're both sides, the Brazilians are doing it more because they're getting overrun, but they're kicking lumps out of each other. And there's one point where Rivellino and Johnny Rep, Rivellino, one of the, the all time Brazilian greats, and they're kind of jostling, and then Johnny slyly he kind of has a quick look around to see where the referee is, and then bang, hits him with his elbow. It's outrageous, <laughs> but it's kind of in the spirit of who they yeah, were. That's right. Um, we were talking before about the first book that we published as a company was about Alan Gozin, and part of the motivation for the writer um, taking on that project was trying to restore um, a player's legacy. It seems yes. to have been slightly lost in the midst of time, and yeah. uh, I like the stuff you do on Rensenbrink yeah. um, because he emerges as this astonishing talent yeah. um, uh, somebody says he's uh, one of the players says he thinks he's as good as Cruyff yeah. um, I think it's, is it Jan Mulder who says it? yeah I think so yeah, yeah. He, you know incredible he, he I love the description of, of uh, Jan Mulder he says you know when I kick a ball it's just a man kicking a ball mm-hmm. but when Rensenbrink does it he, it's like he had a beautiful handwriting the way you control the ball is like a beautiful handwriting. Yeah. Which is such a poetic, lovely thing to say. And also true and accurate. But it was nice to put him... It seemed like that was putting a player back where he belonged. Because it kind of... It, yes. Going back to this like overarching presence of Cruyff, yeah. he does eclipse uh, yes. maybe others yes. in that era. Yeah. Uh, and and it felt like, obviously, Rensenbrink had the post in, in 78 as well, yeah, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. Which it could have all have been... Um, so different, but he looked a bit like Cruyff as well, didn't he? With yes, he did. F- facially, <laughs> when he when Cruyff died, uh, I did a piece for the Guardian, uh, from their um, sports section, and in the first editions, they had a picture not of Cruyff but of Rensenbrink, the number fifteen mm. instead of a number fourteen. Yeah, and then they spotted the error and corrected it. But it was, yeah, no, they did look alike. He looked his uh, bigger, bonier brother. And he lives in a very, a very tiny little, you'd call it almost a cottage. And he'd invested wisely. You know, that was his earnings. It was a little cottage. You know, one of the great players of the 70s. And he'd husbanded it cleverly and he hadn't drunk it away or 
or frittered it in, in some foolish fashion. Like Cruyff lost all his money, the famous, mm, yeah. famous pig farm, so, which is why, and we're grateful in a way, because that's why he came back as a player in the early 80s and had this great Indian summer and influenced the next generation, two generations actually. So Hullet, Van Basten, Rijkaard, Koeman, all those guys benefited from, and the Danish, the great Danish team of 86, was all players who'd, mm-hmm. nearly all players who'd played with Cruyff yeah. or, or, or against him. I didn't know anybody was going to read the book, by the way. I mean, I, th- I was doing it because I kind of just felt I had to do it. It was an obsession and so on. And I was very surprised, very happily thrilled and surprised when it was a success. But I, you know, two or three, four hundred people. Is anybody going to even get this? Mm-hmm. I didn't know. So I wasn't, you know, thinking of memorialising these guys. It was just, that was my response to him. And I, I thought it was important for him to be in the book. The first review that I saw, which was about two weeks before the official publication date. I don't know why, but it was in the Times, and it was a rave. And my agent in Holland, who, who was a friend, we were going to the cinema, and she read me the review, and we cycled through. I was borne along by pure euphoria, because I, I didn't know that anybody was going to like it or understand it or give it any attention. And then it became a torrent. It, was, it got great reviews everywhere. And I, had a, I was lucky enough to have a wonderful publicist at Bloomsbury, a guy called Colin Midson. He, he got me this, all this amazing coverage. He got me on Start the Week, which I was terrified, you know, to be on Start the Week with Jeremy Paxman. And it then chimed perfectly, the book chimed perfectly with what the Dutch did in, in Euro 2000. They played the book almost, exactly as I described, they played. And then they tragically, ridiculously, disastrously unbearably lost in the in the semi-final this crazy game and one of the big newspapers in holland the nrc handelsblatt had a big page like a whole front page of their review section the day after the the italy game and it was all you know david winner predicted this and then years later i discovered that they had two versions <laughs> the other one if, if holland had won that game it said david winner's got it completely wrong he doesn't understand anything <laughs> Was it published in Dutch and English simultaneously? No, it... but but lots of Dutch people read English. So they, they picked it up, obviously. In fact, it still does does quite well in Holland. It's a great cover. It's a brilliant cover, and I had nothing to do with it. It was a guy called Will Webb, and the edition that you have there is a bit bastardised because it's got a sort of silhouette outline of a football, and it's also got this, this black corners, triangle in the corner. The original hardback was this sort of sheeny almost velvety rich bright orange uh, with none of that stuff it was just the the green and the and the edam half cut edam so it's like a ball but you can't kick it and the it's fake grass because it was just a brilliant thing well, well let's talk about the the black triangle in the corner which says updated to include 2010 world cup yes uh, <laughs> it's quite interesting because you you say you say at the start that this is not going to be a definitive history of, of, of Dutch football, so you're going to tell the story that you want to tell. And, yeah. and as a writer, you're looking for that narrative arc. Cast forward to 2010, I mean, that, that feeds into so many of your themes. You must have yes. been watching the World Cup and thinking, I've got to update Brilliant Orange. Well, actually what happened was the publisher of the American edition called me and said... You know, we need... Because when Holland got to the final, before we knew that the, the final was a horror, and it was a kind of repudiation in some respects, 
of, of the, the, the total football tradition, but also grew out of it, is intimately connected with it. And he's a, this uh, guy called Peter Mayer, legend in New York and London publishing, because Overlook, his company, publish uh, the American edition. And he said, I'll give you $1,000 if you can do me an update you know, by Wednesday. The game is on the Sunday, you know, if you can do it really fast. And I wasn't particularly planning to do it, but I, I went to Amsterdam to watch it because I thought, well, maybe I'm actually going to see Holland, yeah. my adopted team, mm-hmm. uh, you know, do something that they couldn't do with a much better team, much more noble characters, really, in the 70s. And this strange but quite lovable team you know, has battled its way to the final. And they're playing the much more Dutch team. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the much Cruyff more Cruyffian team yeah. that Cruyff actually <laughs> came out and vilified and yeah. was very hard on the Dutch mm. the way they played. And, you know, all his, you know, Xavi, absolute disciple of Cruyff, very close. So it is, all these things were in play. And the great change that, over, that come over Holland since the 70s and also since the, the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, it, was, it had been a sharp move to the right, uh, very much more fearful, less confident, mean-spirited, same kind of um, populist politics that we've now seen in Britain with, with the Brexit vote and we're seeing in, a, in an even darker form with, uh, with Trump in America. This was playing out in Holland and it was, you know, I still love the country and the city and, and the colour orange and all of that, but I couldn't help but notice, you know, the change. And so the cha- that chapter is it, it turned into quite a long essay about mm-hmm. how the the new rather brutal football, rather pragmatic is always a euphemism for ugly. Um, this was actually pretty good reflection of the new Holland. I mean, it's interesting. One of the the most powerful points in that chapter that you make is about Ajax when they won the European Cup in 1973, which would have been the third time in a row, I think. Yep. And when Christ's they re- last one. Yeah. So when they returned. To Holland, they were cold-shouldered because yes. the, final, it wasn't any fun. the final was boring. Yeah, yeah. You're on the ground in Amsterdam in 2010, yeah, yeah. and then this team who came back, having been disowned by Johan Cruyff and played the type of football they played, are celebrated as by if they the, are heroes. Returning heroes. Yeah, yeah. That was a very distressing thing. I was kind of shocked that others weren't feeling. You know, this is a new generation, a new way of seeing football that I was not in tune with at all. Rather despised, I must say. You know, the idea that you can clog your way. This is just not the thing I was in love with and had written about. It was a very different thing and it was an ugly thing. In retrospect, I'm slightly less harsh on them. You know, that they were panicked, I think, because Spain was so superior. You know, it would have been... They lost anyway been better to go out with more dignity. I mean, they had dignity and they nearly won it, of course. That would have been an interesting chapter also. Yeah. You know, the, the, the great ones, the really great ones, had never quite managed it. Not just 74 and 78, but 98, which is almost as upsetting. You know, the team of Bergkamp and the De Boer brothers and Davids and all those guys, Clivert. Um, you know, if those guys hadn't managed it, but these, you know, Von Bommel... <laughs> Mm. The team of Van Bommel had done it. That would have been interesting. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned earlier about books developing a life of their own, and, and um, once you put them out into the world, then they become a different beast altogether. How has that um, developed over time? Do you still 
get feedback from people yeah. that, that read and enjoy it? Is it still selling? Is yeah. it still out there? Is it still as powerful as? It's it's suddenly from maybe because it's uh, because Christ died. It's a gift for me. I mean, it's it's what I'll be known for, I guess, if I'm known at all. Yeah. You know, if I drop dead tomorrow or walk in front of a bus or something, I might because a friend of mine used to edit the. Uh, the obits page on the independent and he's doing freelance work at some of the other obits i'd probably get a mention <laughs> and it would be author of author of brilliant orange i'm sure it would, it would, it would say that but it would only be a couple of lines you know. <laughs> thanks to david for agreeing to this interview keep up with david on twitter at d a if you like this please subscribe and leave a review on itunes and if you read a story that you think would make a good feature for the podcast let us know on Twitter at Backpage Press or email backpage at backpagepress.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.